in our uh, church history literacy class, we've taken two Sundays uh, to talk about the history of, of the English Bible. And we used as our springboard the time period of the King James Version, which was 1611. And last week we talked in general about the King James Version and, and how that came about and, and sort of what grew from it. But this week, and actually next week, I apologize, there's too much material here for me to get it in in, in, in two weeks. It's going to take three, um, but uh, that's okay. I'll give it back to you at the end when class is over. Um, uh, we'll go, I don't understand that. Let me keep moving. So we're talking about it this morning. Here's the, the way we're going to start. I want to ask you this question, which I think every thoughtful person is probably either ask consciously or made a conscious decision not to ask because they didn't know the answer. And that is, are these reliable? These are our Bibles. These are the Word of God. It's real easy to say, well, I believe them because it's the Word of God and that settles it and I'm just going to leave it there. I'm not asking the deeper questions of why is it reliable. If you don't want to know why is it reliable then leave today because this is a spoiler alert. I'm going to tell you why it's reliable, okay? Or you don't have to leave. That might be rude. Just draw. Um, if we want to look at why Scripture is reliable, we need to first understand the reliability question that's out there. We can do it in this sense. If we borrow El Greco's painting of Paul and we fast forward to our church, we've got a period of almost 2,000 years from the time El Greco paints to the time we get our scriptures and we're sitting, or not El Greco paints, from the time Paul lived and wrote to the time we are today. 1,950 some odd years have passed from the time Paul wrote his letter to the church at Rome. How do we know when we read our Bibles, the letter to the church at Rome, we're reading something accurate? I'll go you one further. Go back to Moses. Moses, 3,500 years plus. How do we know what we're reading today is truly the events that transpired in Moses' life and before. You know, are our Bibles on target? Are they accurate? Have we hit the bullseye with the dart? That's got two questions that we're going to look at. The first question is, how do we know that the Bible translates what was actually originally written? Scholars call those the autographs. At some point in space and time, at some point in history, Paul wrote a letter to the Romans. But we do not have that original letter he wrote. They did not have copy machines. They did not have fax machines. And they couldn't put it into a PDF to zip it around in emails. So how do we know that what scholars are translating into our Romans is actually what Paul wrote? Do you understand the question? Okay. 
The second question is, how do we know then that our Bible translators have translated properly what it is Paul wrote? First, we need to know what was originally written, and then we need to know how good is our translation. Because Paul was writing in Greek, as were the the, the other New Testament writers. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew and, and a little bit in Aramaic. Those are different languages. Those words have different meanings. They, they have different connotations. How do we know that our versions read with a proper translation of the originals? That's the second problem. We'll address today number one. Number two, and, and, and not even all of number one. We're leaving the Hebrew part till next week. Number two, we're going to address next week as well. Now... If we're going to address number one, we need to start with the history of writing. Because while some of us know some of these things, not all of us do, and it may not be conscious in our brain, we've got to be consciously aware of the history of writing and how writing developed. It's easy for us to write. We go to Walmart or Target or wherever we go. We buy paper, go to Office Supply, Depot, Max, whatever they're called. You buy paper, you buy a pen, and you write. Or you sit and you bang it on a keyboard and you hit print. Or you call in a secretary and say, take a memo. And she does it. But that's not always the way writing has been done. There was a time, you could go back 150 years ago and you could read some critical scholars who wrote against the Bible's integrity. And they said, for example, in the Old Testament, you can't believe that any of the first five books could have anything to do with Moses. They had to be written much later. They didn't even have writing at the time of Moses. However, archaeology in the last hundred years has proven those people to be wrong. You can go over to the Middle East, for example, and you can find just southwest uh, of southeast of, of Baghdad, a dig at Nippur that was done in the late 1800s and into the early 1900s. And there they've discovered, um, uh, at this dig in Nippur, they've discovered writings that predate Moses and Abraham. These are writings, here's a picture of one, that are on clay tablets. These writings include, for example, a flood account. Now, this is not the Epic of Gilgamesh. That's an Akkadian epic for those of you who are sitting down and saying, oh, it must be Gilgamesh. Okay, set that aside. But there's a flood account where a god comes to a man and says there's going to be a flood. You need to build a boat. These writings predate Moses. These writings are clearly over 2,000 years before the time of Christ. There's no disputing. And it's not just hieroglyphics. They're like real writings. There are writings that are in a script called Proto-Hebraic script. Let me uh, see if this is going to work today. Um, we were having some difficulty. Can, does this... Is this sort of... Hello. Tricky, but kind of. Okay. Um, maybe if I stay out of the way... Okay. Okay. Um, this is a what? There. B. Good. 
There's so many jokes I could make and I have no time for them. But they would have been funny, so y'all just generally laugh and I'll think you heard what I was thinking. Um, that's to be or, or not to be. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, the joke eked out to be. Um, let me tell you that originally there was a, a, a Hebraic type word, and I say Hebraic type because Hebrew falls into that family of languages called Semitic. Okay? Last week, if you were here, we talked about the Romance languages that descend from the Romans and the Latin, remember? There's a whole other branch of languages that were down in the Middle East that are called Semitic. That comes from the name Shem, with the idea when scientists and, and language scholars first labeled it, they thought these were the descendants of Shem from Noah, and so their languages would be Semitic or Shemitic, okay? In, in Semitic languages, there is a word in Hebrew, which is a Semitic language, it's the word Beth. It means what? House. House. Beth equals house. Well, originally, houses were just tents, three-sided tents. And this would be the door or the flap or whatever, and, and you could go into the house or into the tent. And so in Hebrew and other scripts, this is the bait, which becomes not only, it's not only the word for house, it becomes what we would consider a letter B. The Phoenicians took the house up to Greece, and in Greece they had full walls. In fact, they had two-room houses. And so the letter B comes out of it. You know, the, 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 this, this was originally a picture of a wave. Water, mem, M-E-M. But over time, it just becomes the letter M with the same sound. It was originally waves. G was originally um, a, a camel. And that's the way they would draw the camel. It's got the hump there. But the Phoenicians took it and turned it around. And so that's... in, in Semitic languages, gimel, or g, is the word for camel. We even get camel from it. You see? So, writing's been developing for a long time. I mean, writing's not something that's new. We've got pre-Hebrew type writings that date back easily to the time of Moses and before in a language that becomes Hebrew over time. How did people do this writing? What would they write on? Well, they would write on any number of different things. If you were poor, you would take shards of pottery, that have, the pottery that's busted, and you'd write on that if you couldn't afford anything else. But the earliest writing was generally done on these clay tablets. They would make it. You wouldn't need a pen. You'd need something sharp enough to dig into the soft clay. And then once you bake it, you've got it, and it's pretty permanent. We've got thousands and thousands of these that they discover thousands and thousands of years later. Kind of heavy, though, don't you think? So they figured out something else. They could write on animal skins. Oh, at first, they'd just take leather. They'd skin the animal. You eat what's inside. You take the leather. What are you going to do with it? Well, you could get one of them funky little rugs that we use in Texas. It looks like the steer, you know, all laid out there. Or you could take it and you could write on it. You'd make your inks out of different things. 
you could ride on the inside of the lake. And then they figured out you could actually do something more. You could skin it and tan it, and we'll talk about that later, and come up with all sorts of different ways. But that was a pretty good way to ride. It was sturdy, it was durable, and it wasn't nearly as heavy as all those clay tablets. All right? Then, oh, 2,500 years before Christ, maybe, in Egypt, they figured out something. Papyrus. They could write on papyrus. Now, you're sitting there thinking, papyrus? P-p-p-papyrus? And because I'm a word nut, you know I can't pass it up. Papyrus. That's the Latin and the Greek word for this type of writing material. We just call it papyr. <laughs> Get rid of that old ending, which was just useful for them, and change that Y into an E. Paper comes from that, the word paper. It's not really paper. Well, in a sense, it was the earliest paper. It was, um, are we still there? Yeah. Papyrus comes from the papyrus plant. The papyrus plant back then grew wild all over the Nile Valley. It's these big old reeds. Some would get 15 feet tall, but generally they're 5 to 9 feet tall. They would grow all over the Nile Valley. And what people figured out is they could get these reeds and they could come in and peel it. And when they'd peel it, they'd have, after they'd peel the shell around it, they'd have a soft center part called the pith. And they would take the pith and they would cut it different ways. Sometimes they'd just cut it straight across. Sometimes they'd cut it with triangle cuts. Sometimes they'd uncut or they'd cut it like I eat a cinnamon roll, you know, where you start on the outside and just work your way to the middle. All right? And as, as they cut it, it'd be wet and mushy. They'd take it and they would, they would lay down a mat of it. Here, like this. They'd lay down two mats, one and then one on top of the other, you see, at a right angle like that. And they'd mash it together and then it'd dry out and it's like paper. And they could do that and they'd have a little glue type, type substance, a little flour and water actually works well, a paste type substance. They would glue it together or they'd paste it together and they'd, they'd make these long strips and they'd put them into scrolls. These are called papyrus scrolls. And uh, you, you, they'd, they'd have little wood runners that they'd be on. A papyrus scroll, by the way, they had a Latin word for it, a volumen. A volumen. That means something rolled up. We get our word volume. I've got a volume over here. Would you like to read it? See, how many volumes did he write? So, you've got these papyrus scrolls. And, and the papyrus scrolls, the maximum length that anybody could really work with was about 35 feet long. Because they just get too unwieldy. You can't really unroll them and roll them. They'd, they'd all be about the same height by and large. And they'd just keep gluing these sheets together. And they could come up with about a 35 foot long roll that you could work with. But you couldn't really get anything bigger than that. There are one or two larger scrolls that scientists and archaeologists have ever found that were written for bizarro purposes not to be read. 
So 35 foot's the general scroll length. You write your letters. And you can't really write. After, when you hit 35 feet, you got to figure out where to break if you got to keep going because you need to get a second scroll. By the way, did you know that the two longest books in the New Testament are Luke and Acts? Both written by Luke, right? It's the history of the church starting with the birth of Christ, before the birth of Christ, and going uh, uh, through a good bit of, of early church history, right? Most scholars believe the reason it's two books instead of one, Luke takes up a 35-foot scroll. He had to break it and start a second volume, a second scroll. And that's why Acts is the second volume. Make sense? Okay, so you've got these. Now, generally, you just write on one side of these scrolls. And it makes sense if you think about you've got this, it's, it's still kind of grainy, this papyrus. And, and you can have the grain going across or you can have the grain going up. And those are the two sides, the recto and verso are the words for them. But what, what uh, people would do generally is they would take the side that has the, the, the grain going long ways in the scroll and that's the side they would write on. And that also served to give you a natural writing line like your big chief tablet when you were a kid. Okay. It works pretty good. And so these are done. The problem with them is is in a wet climate, they're not good for more than about 10 or 20 years. And you keep them in Egypt, where these people invented this stuff, and they'll last a long time. They might get brittle in the dry climate, but the dry air will allow these to last for a good long period of time, such that we can still discover and find them that are several thousand years old today. But you take one of these to Italy or you take one of these to Greece, you're good for about 20 or 30 years. Maybe 40 or 50, but the mold sets in. Houston, huh, week and a half. <laughs> now, um, you, you think about this, though. If Paul's writing on this and he's scooting out a letter to the Romans, it's not surprising that the letter's not around 2,000 years later for us to look at. It's also not surprising that people would immediately see a need to make copies. Not only because it's a holy writing, but because they recognize that the holy writing is not going to last forever in that form. And by the way, I thank God that we don't have the originals. I mean, heavens, we have people who go worship the Shroud of Turin, which carbon dating says is not an original. Can you imagine what people, we would, we would, it would be idolatry in the, uh, grossest form, we'd all be bowing down saying, can I please touch the original Romans? I think it'll help. So, I, I, I mean, God's not in the business of giving us these little idols. And I'm not surprised we don't have them. But if you think about it, now, go to Timothy. Paul writes it toward the end of his life, Second Timothy, and he says, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, my volumes especially the parchments. Now you're saying, parchments? Mark, you haven't told us about parchments. What are parchments? Oh, yes, I told you about them. I just didn't use the word. Those are the high-dollar writings. Those are the animal skins. What they would do with the skin of animals is they would take them and they would stretch it under, so that it's under tension. 
And then they'd scrape off all of the fur. And then they'd have it dry while it's under tension. And then they would cut it into the sizes they need. And they would paste it together as need be. And parchment is what they would use to make a lot of scrolls that have more lasting ability. I have a parchment scroll that's multiple hundreds of years old up here. And you're welcome to come up and gently look at it. But you can see the seams where they join the animal skin together. And you can see the grain of the animal skin. And you can see the handwriting. This is a Hebrew scroll. Dates from about the 1400s. Um, the uh, um, opportunity to, to, to do... Now, oh, you may be thinking, wait a minute. Parchment paper is that valuable? I cook on that stuff. Okay, this is a different kind of parchment paper that you cook on. They're stealing the word, but this is made from vegetables, not animal skins. Okay, you can be a vegetarian and still use your parchment paper. Not that I think we really have many in here, but you never know. Um, Parchment uh, does not rot easily in wet climate and does not grow brittle in dry climate. That's called an error. Now, <clears throat> these sheets originally were scrolls, but around 50 to 100 A.D., someone got the idea that instead of making scrolls, they could make what is called a codex. What they would do is they would take a sheet that was about uh, 10 or 15 inches high. This is only eight and a half. And about uh, 15 or so inches wide, which this is. And they might take two of these sheets and they would take them together and they would fold them in the middle like this. And then they would take a needle and thread and they would stitch down the middle. And then all of a sudden, voila, you have a codex or what we would call a book. And they would take, oh, they might take four, six, eight, 12 sheets, but after 12 sheets, it got a little tough to stick the needle and thread through there and a little bulky. So all they would do is up to 12, and then they would take a second set and put it right next to it. And these became books. Now, books were not used by the Romans. It really didn't catch on except with the church. Christianity are who pushed the books. Do you know why? One easy reason scholars recognize is Let's see. I'd like to read Isaiah 42, verse 13. Let me see here. It's right over, you know, uh, somewhere in this scroll. Then you've got to do this thing back up. Such a pain. How about a book? Easy reference. You can flip to the page you need. You can look around. It also makes sense why... Uh, once they started books, they start thinking, gee, would it even be better if we had some way of marking chapters and verses so we could find things easier? But we don't even have chapters and verses marked. This is a real painful way to look at something for a reference. But Christians saw in Scripture the divine Word of God, a, a, a rule to, 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 to give us wisdom, to give us insight, to give us guidance for our lives. So it's something that we always would want to go back to and read and look and study and show a reference or compare a reference. And so it was the church that started making up codexes or books which have also been found. Now, last week we asked this question. The King James Version was translated from the Greek and Hebrew. This week we've got to ask this question... 
where did those Greek and Hebrew manuscripts come from if they weren't the actual originals? We'll start this way. We've mentioned a fellow named Desidrius Erasmus. He was the first one to publish a Greek New Testament. He published it in the 1500s, early 1500s. He, Erasmus is who published the Greek New Testament that Luther used to translate the Bible into German. Erasmus is the one who translated or who, who published a Greek New Testament that was used by the folks in Geneva who translated an English Bible, a French Bible. Where did he get his Greek text from? The church had been using, the Western church, the Latin Vulgate for over a thousand years at that point in time. But Erasmus thought it important to do the Greek, so Erasmus went hunting for Greek manuscripts in the monasteries. He found six, which is where he got his first edition from. And his first edition, he published it in 1516. Now, these six were good. They weren't totally complete. A portion of Revelation was missing in all of them because it had been destroyed or those pieces had not been found. The oldest manuscript, though, that he had dated from about the 1100s. He didn't have anything that was real, real old. As for his Hebrew, he used... Oh, consider 1 John 5, 7 through 8. I'm not doing this justice if we don't look at some of these things because they're fascinating and and they're, they're useful. If you look at 1 John 7 and 8 for a minute, if you've got a King James Version, I've pulled out, this is a, a copy of, the, uh, of, of, of an original King James, okay? So we've got an original King James here, uh, type version. Zoom in. Let's get it up here. Okay, the original King James reads, For there are three, this is 1 John 3, let me tell you where we are. We're at 1 John 3, 7 and 8. Oh, 5, sorry. I was speaking in Old English. 5, 7 through 8. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. Y'all see that? Now, we take an NIV, New International Version. And we flip to 1 John 5, 7 through 8. See, I learned. And look what it says. See if I can get both of them up here. Does it show? uh, Not really well, does it? That's all right. We still need to figure out how to do this. Let's see. We're going to do that. Sorry for the technology here, guys. Zoom out. Scoot out. There. That'll do it. Okay. 1 John 3, 5. (laughs) Yeah. This is really... All right. Here's King James. There are three that bear record in heaven. Father, Word, and Holy Ghost. These three are one. Three that bear witness in earth. The Spirit and the water. And the blood, these three agree in one. Look at what uh, the NIV says. It says, For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. That's it. There's none of this, 
Three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. By the way, that sure would have cleared up that Trinity dispute if that had been in the original, wouldn't it? You know, all that Council of Nicaea stuff that took us weeks to sort through. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That's not even here in the NIV. It just says, for there are three that testify. And then it jumps straight to the Spirit, the water, and the blood. There is, however, a little footnote here, this K right there. And we can go down to the bottom of the page and we can read K. Late manuscripts of the Latin have this, Testify in heaven the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that testify on earth. It says, that's not found in any Greek manuscript before the 16th century. See, that wasn't in Erasmus' manuscript. So he didn't put it in his Greek publication. And the church was in an uproar. And he says, hey, I'm putting out a new edition in 1520. If anybody can show me one Greek manuscript that has that in there, I'll insert it. So someone brought him a Greek manuscript and said, here it is. He had his suspicions and scientists later determined that that was uh, just created for Erasmus. It was not... You know, it, it, it was not an authentic Greek manuscript. And that's why they say that not found in any Greek manuscript before the 16th century, before it was made for Erasmus to force him to include it, which he did. And it's the Erasmus text that the King James Version uses without going back to a lot of older text and more original texts. So Erasmus uses these Greek manuscripts. There we go. And, but his oldest one's 1100 years old, or is 1100 A.D. His Hebrew manuscripts we'll talk about next week. Now, why is one manuscript that's 1100 A.D. maybe not as good as another one? How did someone get something different? This is an area uh, called variant readings. There are, and, and if you read on the internet, skeptics of the Word of God, they'll say there are, you know, 10,000 different readings of the New Testament. 10,000 variations. How can anyone think that what we have is an original or authentic? Well, that's an, a nice, ignorant statement. It may be naively ignorant, but it's ignorant. Because you, 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 if you consider what happened, okay, well, they didn't have Xerox machines, so how do you get a copy of uh, Paul's Romans letter? For centuries, you have monks who are either sitting there, and they got one here, and they got one here, and they're trying to read while they translate. Do you know what happens when, or while they copy? Do you know what happens after about an hour or two? Okay. Yeah, you should read my lessons when I first type them. Typos by hand come in all over the place. But it's not hard to figure out what they mean. For example, 1 Timothy 3.16 shows an easy confusion of letters. 1 Timothy 3.16 is a passage that if we look at it in the King James... First. Timothy 
3.16. Ah, is it there? Can you all see that? Okay. It says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. See that? God was manifest in the flesh. Now, let me show it to you in the NIV. In the NIV, it says, instead of God was manifest in the flesh, it says, He appeared in a body. Well, now, I mean, it's clearly talking about the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations. There's no doubt this is Jesus Christ, God. But did the original actually say He? Whoops. Or did the original actually say God? Which is it? Well, when they were writing, what they would often do is abbreviations, especially when it came to the name of God. Because God was a name that a good Hebrew wouldn't write. So what Jews would do is they'd leave out some of the letters. What uh, uh, the scholars would do is they would just do the theos, by the way, is the word for God. And the TH is one letter, the theta letter. Whoa, sorry, theos. Y'all have to yell when I'm writing and it's not showing. Theos, and they would abbreviate. They'd leave out the EO and they'd just have OS. And that would be God. Usually they'd put a little line over the top to let you know it was an abbreviation. Well, that's the word for God. But as your ink is old and as your vision's not great and as the copy's old and it's starting to deteriorate, you know, if instead you have it like that without the slash, without the belt across there, the O, that's He. And so some of the manuscripts... But you can go back and see which manuscripts have he and which have God because uh, you can date them. You can go back and you can see the older manuscripts have he. And that somewhere some guy was looking at it and it's clearly it talks about the godliness and all the rest and he's sitting there writing it and so he just thinks that it's an abbreviation for God and he reproduces it that way. Um, this uh, this is, is why I say... You know, that these are not big deals. They're really not. And you can look at it and you can date the manuscripts. We now have, bless his heart, Erasmus had six. Do you know how many our scholars have? Over 5,000. And when our scholars go to try and figure it out, they not just have 5,000 copies of, of various parts of the Bible. They have the writings of the early church fathers now who are quoting Scripture so you can go compare it. We have translations of the Bible into Syriac that date back to 200 A.D., the Peshitta it's called. So we can see how they translated it. We have early commentaries on Scripture that quote Scripture. So they have at their resources literally thousands of different variants and they're able to real easily tell what happened. Like in 1 John 2.23, I don't have time to do this, but they skip words. They just, it's the kind of thing where you're riding along and, and, and you, you, you're copying something and you just skip two or three words because the same phrase is repeated. And you just thought, oh, I'd already done it. Maybe I'm not making sense. I'll try to make more sense out of this next week. But another way that they would translate is, is I mean, a copy is, and this was like mass copying. 
they'd have like five of you out there and give each of you a big chief tablet and a pen. And one guy would stand up and read it. So five of you could write it at one time. And that's also great because when you hear things, like some of you, if I say, you know, write down there, you're going to write T-H-E-I-R, and some of you are going to write T-H-E-R-E. Usually these were caught by a guy who edited, but not always. And so we see these types of variants. Over time, we've had, ah, bap, bap, we don't have time for that. Ah, we've made lots of improvements since Erasmus's first text. Constantine von Tischendorf was a guy in the 1500s, uh, I mean the 1800s, 1850s, elaborate story. He goes to St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai. And he actually finds in the trash can some old Greek pages that they're set to burn. He says, can I have those? Turns out he got turned on to the oldest complete Bible in Greek we've ever found. It's called Codex Sinaiticus. And Codex Sinaiticus, after Mount Sinai where it was found, is basically the entire Bible. And the date on it is about 325 A.D. It's most likely Constantine the emperor, when he converts to Christianity and the empire does, he said, I want 50 of the best copies of Scripture made. And this is one of those 50. Most scholars agree. Which means, by the way, when you're making it for the emperor, who can kill you if you make mistakes, you're pretty careful. Even if he is a Christian, he's a temperamental one. And he hasn't known the Lord for that long. And this is the principal background text right now that's used by a lot of our scholars. But not only that, even though it dates from the 300s and all the rest, there's another um, Codex Vaticanus, which the Vatican had and they just didn't realize it. Here's a, a reproduced copy. They made 50 of these for scholars to use, and we've been fortunate enough to get one. You're welcome to pull this out and look at it. It also dates from the same time period. And so it's there as well as another way to compare. And John Ryland's museum over in England, Manchester, England, they've got a fragment of the Gospel of John, just a fragment. It's two and a half by three and a half inches wide. It dates from about 125. Some scholars think even earlier. But it's clearly within, a, within 20 or 30 years probably of when John wrote it. It's got John 18, 31 through 33 on the front, and on the back is 37 through 38. It was part of a codex, so it's written on both sides as opposed to a scroll. Um, very, very few questions remain of what the original said. Of those 10,000 problems that the skeptics will talk about, do you know what most of them are? A misspelling. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that someone left a letter out somewhere. When you really sift down through it, there are a couple of areas where scholars have a disagreement. There's a passage in Acts 6, verse 8, where does it say Stephen was full of grace or faith or faith and grace? Okay, well, I'll tell you, he was full of both. Now, what Luke wrote, I think, is most likely faith. But he was full of grace too. John seven fifty three through eight eleven is the story of the woman caught in adultery. 
and there are questions about whether or not it was in the original John. Mark 16, 9 through 20, there are serious questions about whether or not that's an appropriate ending. But I got to tell you, you take those and one or two others, and that's really all they have any questions about. And not one of those affect any kind of a core doctrine or any doctrine at all. If the woman caught in adultery was not in the original, does that mean that now we stone women who are prostitutes who come to the Lord? No. There's nothing at the end of Mark that's not included in other Gospels as well. There is no doctrine that's affected by anybody who has a true concern. And the reason why makes sense. It's because... Oh, this is next week. Sorry. The reason why makes sense. The Gideons give away... I had it down here. 68 million copies of the Bible last year. 68 million copies last year in 82 different languages in 181 nations. And the reason they could do that, by the way, if you ever give a dollar to the Gideons, that entire dollar goes to Scripture giveaways. The reason they do that is because God has ensured that His Word would be available for us to teach His redemptive history. The reason we adore the Bible is not because we're Bible idolaters. We don't worship the Bible. We worship who the Bible teaches us about. The, the Bible is lovely because of the, the view it gives us of God and the condition of man. And I want to I continue this class next week. And I'm sorry I've taken you over. I can't leave you without a point for home because this is not just an academic lesson on writing. My point for home for you is this, and we'll pick this up next week. Next week is going to be real fun because we're going to look at some different translations and, and why they're different and who's using a different text than someone else or who's got a different agenda than someone else. But let me tell you this, and then we'll pray and you go get your kids if you've got them. Um, the whole reason we have a Bible is because God wanted to communicate to us. That's the only reason we have them. I mean, if this God that made us didn't give a rip about communicating to us, He never would have given us a Bible. But the God who made us, who wants us to understand Him, who wants us to understand ourselves, and who wants us to understand His redemptive history in Jesus Christ, has delivered it to us in His Word. Does it not make sense He would have secured that message through the ages? If Satan could not defeat Jesus on the cross, do you think he can defeat God's telling us about it in the Bible? So we, we have Scripture that's not only inspired, but we have Scripture that has been secured, that delivers God's message to us, a message of Jesus. And I, I, I talked to you all about this till I'm blue in the face. I could do 20 weeks on this and not touch the surface. I've spent four and a half years of my life in linguistic studies, taking a degree in Hebrew and Greek and writing papers on this. And I'm here to tell you, I don't have a shred of doubt in my mind that what I'm reading is exactly what God wants me to read. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for speaking to us, not only in our hearts and through the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, in our spirits, but also in our minds and through your word through the word Jesus and through the way you, through the Bible, have revealed to us in written word what you are about. 
what you, how and why you've made us and uh, how and why you redeem us. We worship and adore you. Please, Lord, instill faith in your children that you're a strong enough God to secure your word for us. And we don't need to live in doubt. Through Jesus, I pray, amen.